0: It's Wednesday, December 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The UK has begun the rollout of the Pfizer vaccine and all eyes will be on them for things that they do right and things that they do wrong. It has been less than a week that Britain has granted emergency use authorization and because of limited supplies and how difficult the Pfizer vaccine is to ship and store, only about 50 hospital hubs will be able to administer the vaccine for now. Joanna Sugden, assistant editor at the Wall Street Journal based in London, joins us for how the vaccine distribution is going in the UK. Next, President Trump continues his fight to overturn the election, but his protracted fight is causing rifts in the Republican Party, with many party leaders supporting the president's claim of a stolen election and Republican governors that have certified his loss. David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico, joins us for how the president's influence impacts the party in the Georgia Senate runoff, the midterms, and 2024. Finally, businesses across the country have been hit hard by lockdowns and restrictions. But in Los Angeles, there is a revolt when it comes to a ban on outdoor dining. Restaurants feel like they are scapegoats for the lockdowns, with elected officials' failure to provide the science behind their reasons to close outdoor dining. Some restaurant owners are filing lawsuits and even planning on defying lockdown rules just to keep their businesses afloat. Anne Doe, reporter at the LA Times, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: You've got to be optimistic. You've got to believe that there's the the power of sweet reason uh, to to get this thing over the line. But I've got to tell you, it's looking very, very difficult at the moment. But I would just say to everybody, there there are great options ahead for our country. Joining
0: us now is Joanna Sugden, an assistant editor at The Wall Street Journal based in London. Thanks for joining us, Joanna. It's a pleasure, thanks for having me. The UK has begun the rollout of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. They're the first Western country to do so. And all eyes are on them to see how the rollout's gonna go to see, uh, you know, here in the United States to see what we can learn from them, what we can do better. They got started less than a week after Britain had granted the emergency use authorization there. And the first people to get them were a 90 year old woman named Maggie Keegan and also uh, William Shakespeare.
2: Two elderly people and one called Williams Shakespeare. where there's been plenty of jokes flying around about that all as well and as well being my favorite one. Yeah, <laughs> but it's great news and people are understandably excited, but there is also a sense of caution at the same time. But yeah, it's, it's fantastic news at the end of a difficult year.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the caution. There has been some aversion to people wanting to take the vaccine. I guess there was a poll in the UK that said about 79 people said that they would take it. In the United States, it's a little different. It's a lot less. It's only 64% that said that they would take it right away.
2: There's kind of less anti-vax sentiment in the UK, I would say. There's a minority of people who have, since the pandemic started, gone out on anti-lockdown protests or anti-vaccine protests more recently, kind of fueled by things they might read online about what the vaccine contains misinformation about how the speed of the vaccine um, and how quickly it's been approved but the regulators are extremely stringent and they have approved things concurrently rather than sequentially and that's how they've done it so quickly but yes there is a small pocket of people who are against taking the vaccine we think about a third according to recent polls let's talk
0: a little bit about the distribution and how all that is going to go as far as doses go It seems like the UK only has about enough doses for about 20 million people and maybe about 7 million doses they said that they'd get by the end of the year. And to kind of complicate that, we know that Pfizer's vaccine specifically is very difficult to ship and store. It has to be kept really, really cold and in special refrigerated units. That means that only about 50 hospital hubs there in London will be able to distribute this.
2: That's across England, yeah, 50 hubs across the whole of England at the moment. That's their initial thing. Just this week, that's how they're starting off. So they're vaccinating the vaccinators and also vulnerable people, vulnerable elderly people who might be coming in for an operation or being exposed to the hospital setting anyway. So they vaccinate them while they're there. On the doses, they have ordered 40 million from Pfizer, but the UK has taken this kind of portfolio approach to the vaccines where it's it uh, has orders with seven companies who are developing vaccines, and that's how it hopes to reach the whole population. I think it has 100 million on order from AstraZeneca and Oxford University, the vaccine that is teeing itself up for emergency use approval in the, in the coming weeks.
0: Talk a little bit about some of the other obstacles with this in distributing the vaccine I know that some of the laws were changed there to allow student doctors and even dental workers to administer this. But beyond that, the shot is so tricky to administer because, as we mentioned, some of these sub-zero temperatures that it needs to be kept in, and they're not in ready-made shots. They're in bigger vials. So some of the people administering the shots are are saying, you know, it's a little trickier than usual.
2: Absolutely. It's not just sub-zero temperatures. We describe them today as sub-arctic, minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit is the temperature at which this vaccine can survive for six months. If you take it out of that and thaw it, it can survive for five days at a normal kind of refrigerated temperature between two and eight degrees. But but beyond that, any warmer than that, and you've just got two hours before it becomes um, unviable. So it's being shipped across from Belgium where it's produced in these huge kind of 975 dose Packets. And as soon as you crack those open, that kind of begins the process of thawing, and you have to use them all at once. So that's the challenge faced by smaller, particularly nursing home providers who are desperate to get this vaccine out to their residents. But the challenge with this particular vaccine, which has to be kept, in such specific conditions, is that there are logistical challenges which still have to be overcome to get it into these smaller providers. And that's what the National Health Service, which is distributing the vaccine across the UK, is trying to overcome at the moment and work out how it does that safely and so that vaccine isn't wasted. I think that's why they're also pinning a lot of hope on the AstraZeneca vaccine, which can be kept at more normal temperatures and is a lot cheaper.
0: The Pfizer vaccine is one of the big ones. It has an efficacy rate of 95% after the two doses. They say the protection starts after about 10 days. So, I mean, it's a very effective vaccine against COVID-19. And, you know, it's just kind of the rollout is difficult, right? In the United States, we're prioritizing people in nursing homes and healthcare workers. I know it's very similar there in the UK as well.
2: So the government scientific advisory group has developed a kind of roster of who should get it first and it does have care home residents at the top but unfortunately at the moment that just doesn't seem to be practical in this initial wave. They're very much hoping that by Christmas they will have established a a way of getting these vaccines to people who can't get to A hospital which has a huge ultra low temperature freezer but they're not there yet and that's the challenge.
0: Joanna Sugden, an assistant editor at the Wall Street Journal based in London, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks
3: for having me. I find there's nothing wrong with that ensuring that any question of irregularities or voter fraud are thoroughly investigated
0: um, and, and give the president an opportunity to exhaust his legal options. Joining us now is David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thanks for joining us, David. Good to be here. I wanted to talk about what's happening with the Republican Party right now. President Trump is going to be on his way out. He's still continuing to fight the outcome of the election. Unfortunately for him, it's not gonna happen. You know, everything's getting certified for Joe Biden. He will have to leave the White House come January. But this fight that he's going on is reshaping the Republican Party in a lot of different ways. It's very much the party of Trump and there's Republican leaders all over the country that are in his court that are saying the same thing, that the election was stolen. So David, tell us a little bit about how everything is changing for the GOP.
1: I think that there's a lot of things changing, but one in particular is that, you know, there's always been this kind of rift between the establishment elected class and the activist class in the Republican Party. And I think something that Trump is exacerbating that rift in a way, because by pressing Republicans to take a side on this one issue about was the election valid or not, at which, you know, a majority of Republicans think the election was stolen from the president. And by forcing that decision on a lot of these elected officials, you're seeing these weird breaks that really you wouldn't have seen years ago in the party. And that, you know, you have the chair of a state party telling the top elected official in his or her state to shut up or fighting with them on Twitter. That just didn't used to happen. And that's new, I think.
0: Tell me about some of those fights. We're seeing fights in Georgia, in Arizona, in Michigan even, where, as you said, the Republican Party chairs are just fighting with their governors because their governors and their secretary of states are certifying the results. They're not buying into this massive election fraud.
1: And the one about the shutting up is in Arizona, where Kelly Ward, the chair, is spat with (laughs) Ducey, the governor, for exactly the reason that you mentioned, going on in other states as well. I mean, Arizona is a particularly interesting case because it had been Republican for so long and then flipped this year. And I think that adds to the pressure there. You saw the GOP what just maybe Monday night asking supporters on Twitter if they were willing to die for right. fighting the election. These are emotional times, I think, for the party.
0: And, you know, the president has always demanded loyalty across the board, really. What happens when he's out of power? How does the party move forward? I know he's floated around saying he might run for 2024, which kind of puts a lot of potential candidates on hold, really, to see what he does. But what does the party do when he's not in power anymore?
1: Well, I think some form of, uh, whether Trump is a noun or a verb, it will be, or an adjective, I guess it will be, there will be some kind of Trump influencing the party. It'll be the president uh, until he says that he's not going to run unless he does run, and then obviously he maintains hold. Or there will be this force of Trump-like candidates, and there's some good reason for that. You have state party chairs and elected officials in some of these states who really, who saw Trump broaden the electorate on the Republican side in ways that previous Republicans have been unable to. And so I do think there is a compelling case if you're a Republican. And you know, on the Democratic side, there's a compelling case for this too. But the argument that this populist streak that Trump managed to advance is something that the party needs to maintain if it's going to continue to drive out turnout in the way it did. I don't know that that can happen with somebody who isn't Trump, but that's what Republicans, I think, are going to be trying to do.
0: What happens to the more traditional Republicans? They obviously are in a tough spot. They don't want to alienate President Trump's base, but they have to kind of operate in a Biden administration now. So, how do they move forward?
1: I think they move forward getting trashed day in and day out by the base, and then that'll make for great copy and people will write about it. You know, I think one of the things that, you know, like when a Ben Sass or a Mitt Romney says something and then Trump goes to town on them. The thing about the Republican Party is, unlike the Democrats, there aren't huge ideological divisions within that party, but there is this division in style, I think. And so when you see those kind of conflicts, if you were a a base Republican, I think what excites activists about Trump is less that there's some kind of policy dispute between the, the two sides, than that one is willing to raise his middle finger and tell the other one to get lost. And it's so interesting now coming from Trump because he is the establishment, right? but is viewed as this anti-establishment figure. And so I, I do think that's a huge problem for some of these more traditionalist Republicans.
0: David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much.
3: I'm losing everything. Everything I own is being taken away from me. And they set up a movie company right next to my outdoor patio. Tell me that this is dangerous, but right next to me as a slap in my face,
0: that's safe. Joining us now is Anne Doe, reporter at the LA Times. Thanks for joining us, Anne. Thanks for having me, Oscar. Businesses across the country have been hit really hard by lockdowns and restrictions due to the rising cases of coronavirus. But in California, it's been especially difficult. There's statewide stay-at-home orders right now. And then deeper in Los Angeles County and Southern California, restaurants really are facing the brunt of it. Early on in the pandemic, there was obviously big shutdowns. You could only do takeout orders or deliveries. Then we reopened and we did outdoor dining, indoor dining for a little bit, and then everything got shut back down. And really, right now, restaurants are just suffering so much now that everything is back to takeout and delivery only. And in a lot of cases, some of these restaurants are saying that they might defy some of these lockdown orders. Uh, and you've been talking to a lot of tours uh, What are they saying about this? Well,
3: they're saying that they complied with, quote, every demand, unquote, set down by the state. And they've spent thousands of dollars disinfecting multiple times, sometimes at all the different restaurants that they own. And now heading into the holiday season, which they're banking on to help rescue the hugely tanking year,
0: they're closing down again some of these orders that they have to close down, they're, they're saying that they want to go again. So it was actually, there's a lot of lawsuits going on right now about this. And a judge just said that LA County's ban on outdoor dining is going to have to expire December 16th after the three weeks that they set it up for. And that they're going to have to conduct a risk-benefit analysis to extend the closures if they want to. They're going to have to present a lot of evidence for that. And one of the cries that we keep hearing is We're doing this because of the science. Well, you know, L.A. County was confronted with this, saying, tell us what the science is behind this. Is outdoor dining really a big vector for transmission of coronavirus? And they didn't really have anything. What did the restaurateurs and the people that you talked to have to say about that part of it?
3: Some of the folks I talked to, Oscar, they're asking whether 200 people in a grocery store is safer than 200 people in a restaurant. They're putting out all kinds of examples, and they say that in order to survive, they will have to, quote, unquote, experiment with serving indoors, continuing, and they're doubling the six-feet distancing requirement by using 12 feet, and they're saying, just come on down. If you don't have a mask, we can provide you one upon entrance. But one restaurant in particular, Basilico's, an Italian place in Huntington Beach, has made national headlines because they don't allow masks. I went in there to try to interview some people yesterday, and the waiter told me politely, if you want to stay in here, please take off your mask, ma'am. And they're almost sold out of their house t-shirts, which says, leave the mask take the cannoli. (laughs) Right. And that's a twist on the Godfather film.
0: Huntington Beach, for its part, has always been kind of against a lot of these rules, definitely against mask wearing. There was rallies there and all. So definitely a place where where that is kind of taking place. But there's penalties involved for restaurants that go against the rules, hundreds of dollars in some cases. But the other interesting part of it is that law enforcement, a lot of law enforcement agencies said that they're not going to respond to calls of people skirting some of the rules, they say that that, that's a matter of personal responsibility and not a matter for law enforcement to get involved in.
3: Exactly, Oscar. In fact, locally near where the restaurant is in Huntington Beach, the Orange County Sheriff's Department has come out on the record saying it's not our job. And frankly, if we all look around in society, our law enforcement agencies are understaffed like everywhere else because of furloughs and... There's no money. Everyone's budget has dried
0: up. Part of this judge's order that we were talking about a little bit earlier, you know, they said that the county's going to have to determine the cost of closing so many restaurants, the economic cost of closing so many restaurants, not just for the restaurants themselves and the employees, but the employees, you know, people that work there. What are the restaurateurs telling you about just making ends meet and their employees also, you know, not having money, as you mentioned, going right into the holidays right now?
3: I'm glad you asked that because I spoke with Dino Ferraro and he's the chef at Capone's Italian Cucina and the Black Trumpet Bistro in Huntington Beach as well. And he told me he has fifty eight employees total and that for him means that fifty eight families are getting fed. So he wonders how he can even bring up the subject of layoffs. At this time he's owing, you know, more than a hundred thousand dollars in back rent and these landlords according to him, are not giving them a break at all or any kind of discount. And I spent a lot of time in Huntington Beach in the past several days. And diners, his customers, as well as ordinary people going about their business in downtown and near the pier are really angry at how the moms and pops, that's what they call it, are being targeted. This is like a make it or break it year end time. And they're predicting a lot more homelessness and potential break-ins of businesses.
0: And Doe, reporter at the LA Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for listening. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.